You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Our Old Testament reading today is going to be from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, and glory, and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed." This is the word of the Lord. Our New Testament reading and sermon text is from John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, When you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. So Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. Good to be with you guys. Um, made the big trip down from Boulder, so thanks for having me, and I'm, I'm honored to fill in for my friend uh, Brian Brown. I think I've known Brian now for 13 years, and so um, I'm, I love coming down and seeing what he has going on and what's going on with Trinity. Um, it, it's a huge blessing to, believe it or not, we, we do leave Boulder every once in a while, those who live there, um, and so I broke out of the Boulder bubble and came down to Denver, and I'm glad to be here with you. Um, I believe that you guys are currently studying through the book of, um, what, 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 
Samuel, First Samuel? Yeah, and so we're not doing that today, obviously, from the text reading. Um, we're going to take a little break this week while you're with me, and we will be in John chapter 1, so if you had your Bible open before, you can just stay there. Now, one of my favorite books, um, fiction books of all time, um, would be The Voyage of the Dawn Treader by C.S. Lewis. If you're not familiar with those books, it's actually one of the books in a series. Um, the Chronicles of Narnia series became really popular recently because um, they were made into movies as well. They actually did an okay job. I don't know about you, but when my favorite books get turned into movies, I usually get really nervous. It wasn't great, but it wasn't terrible. Um, so I'll, I'll take it. But um, that, that book um, is really a, has been one of my favorite books of all times. And, and believe it or not, if you're familiar with the book, one of my favorite characters in the book is probably not who you would guess. One of my favorite characters in the book is Eustace. Now, Eustace is, uh, is, is kind of a brat. He's a little boy. And that's who he is. He's a total brat in the book. And uh, he is the cousin of the main characters, the kids who had previously gone into Narnia. And, and where, where you kind of find yourself in the book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, is that the cousins are all living together at a time. They're living at Eustace's house. And they have to deal with this bratty little brother. I mean, cousin, I'm sorry. And, and, and so they're all together. And Eustace like, loves to make fun of them about imagining being back in Narnia again and how it's not true until all of a sudden he finds himself in the land of Narnia with um, the cousins as well after a, a painting comes to life and it floods a room and they get swept out to sea and the dawn treader of the ship picks them up. I don't want to give away the whole book, but I need to at least make sure we're on the same page here, right? And so, and so, so they find themselves together there and you'd think after that experience, this character would come around and would be a little bit more um, believing, a little bit more kind towards his cousins, and he's not. He doubles down. He becomes brattier, 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 and eventually they find um, themselves in an area where there's a bunch of gold on this whole journey that they're on, and they're not supposed to take any of the gold, and Eusis does what a brat would do. He takes some of the gold, and basically the punishment for this is ultimately showing off his selfishness and his greed is that he is turned into a dragon, which to me actually sounds kind of cool, but um, he does not find it cool. It's actually painful for him. And so Eustace is turned into this dragon, and through this journey of being this dragon, he, he starts to kind of come around to the people on the boat and to his cousins. And he starts seeing a change in him, and there's an issue, though. Even though he keeps trying to change and do better and do good things, he doesn't change back into a boy. And then you get Eustace, the dragon now, meeting Aslan, who's the Christ figure in the story. And, and, and this is what Eustace says when he's describing when he sees Aslan for the first time. He says, I was terribly afraid. And then Aslan tells Eustace to follow him and to undress. And, and though Eustace is able to kind of shed his outer skin a few times, he, he fails repeatedly as he tries to shed the scales away on his own. He, he can't quite get a noticeable difference to be made. Aslan then says, you will have to let me undress you. Eustace then recalls, the very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. And then after removing the skin, Aslan then tosses Eustace into a pool of water. 
And while he's in that pool, he realizes that he's become a boy again, that he has shed the scales of the dragon. He exits the pool, and Aslan dresses him in new clothes. Now, I trust in sharing this, at some level, we can all grasp and see the story behind the story, that that we have a a picture of salvation being laid out for us. The the, the picture of that, that, that there was sin in this young man's life, and he bore the scales of that. And as he tried to strip himself of the scales, he could not do it, no matter how hard he tried. And what he needed was Christ to come and to wound him, if you will, to show him his sin, to confess and have Christ heal him from his sin, to be baptized and even come out of the water and even get the picture of um, Genesis after the fall of being reclothed, of, of even the grace and mercy of God going with them. And, and we see this beautiful picture. I think it's one of the, the coolest fictional representations of salvation being played out in all of literature. But I bring this up this morning because I think it's something we can all relate to and understand. We all know the pains of our sins. We all know the desire to be set free and be who God has called us to be, to live holy and righteous lives. We know the efforts that we make when we err, when we try to do that on our own, when we try to shed the scales of our sins ourselves, aside from going to Christ. But the truth is that Jesus is the one who calls us. He is the one who brings us in. He is the one that tells us who we are. And he is the one that brings heaven to earth. And our text here in John chapter 1 this morning is a text where Jesus brings four men close to himself. He takes off their scales. He shows them who they are. And most importantly, he shows them who he is. And as we go through this text, you have a real opportunity here this morning. Chiefly, to praise God for the work he has done in your life, that he has done that. And and if you are here and you do not know who Christ is, you do not know what it means to have the scales of sin removed, you have a great opportunity to be saved here this morning. Like Eustace. You have the opportunity to be reminded that Jesus has handled your sin once and for all, and told you who you are and has shown you who he is. That is the beauty of this text. Now, what I'd like to do as we work through this, um, I want to look at these four disciples, these four men that Jesus says, come and see to, or follow me. And and I'm going to start with Andrew, but before I get to Andrew, I want to set the stage a bit. Because I want to make sure we have a little bit of context here. What's happened leading up to this passage um, in, in John one uh, thirty-five is you, you get John the Baptist is, has been baptizing. And, and in the previous passage is John and Jesus' interaction. Where John the Baptist cries out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so that, that has just recently happened. But, but here in this text... We start with John the Baptist again. Do we not? Did you see that in there in the very beginning? And, and he's with two. And John the Baptist is with two of his disciples. Right, verse thirty-five. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples and looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, "Behold, the Lamb of God." 
So he's doing the same thing he did the previous day. But it is different this time. The first time he did it in the previous text, he was doing it to kind of announce and teach everybody who's around. If you read this text deeply and you dive into it, what you can realize here is when he says, behold the Lamb of God this time, what he's saying is saying it basically to his two disciples. As Jesus walks by, he's saying, guys, behold the Lamb of God. It's, it, it gives us an image of, he's saying, why are you still with me? That's the Messiah. You're to go follow him. So it's an interesting thing that we have going on here. And this time he's saying to the disciples, go, be with Jesus. That's how he is leading him in that moment. And look down at verse 37 as we see this. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and they saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Another little note here that we need to make before we get into these characters is, I don't know if you notice this, um, when the Bible doesn't explain something fully, it drives me nuts, and I'm always trying to figure out what's going on in there. And it's interesting here that we see that two men leave John the Baptist and follow Jesus, but we get one name. I like completing projects. And so I'm like, I have to know who this is. The problem is we don't 100% know who that is. But most theologians, most commentaries would say that it's probably the author of the book of John, John himself. And this would be a very normal way in which John would write. John writes himself into the story in the book of John often, but he never names himself. And this is what John does over and over again. So we can probably step forward with a bit of an assumption that this is John, was the other man who followed Jesus that day. So, Andrew. We know Andrew's now following Jesus. But who is Andrew? Well, Andrew has a great name. I don't know if you know this, but the name Andrew literally means manly. How do you beat that? Just manly. What, what, what are you about? Manly things. I'm manly. That's, that's Andrew. Um, we know that he was a fisherman by trade, and he shared a house in Capernaum with Peter, his brother. That's in Mark one twenty nine. Also, we don't know a lot about him, but what we do know is actually quite instructive. First, we know that he was a disciple or follower of John the Baptist. That's made clear in our text. What does that mean? Well, that meant he was religiously devout. He was a repentant man who was longing for and seeking the Messiah. So he was a man who was desirous of the coming of the Messiah. And second, Andrew is evidently quite humble if you actually look at him and you study him throughout the Gospels. Why? Well, he's Peter's brother. And so Andrew's regularly referred to as Simon Peter's brother. Now, if you have a brother, how would you feel if you were always referred to as, not by your name, but as fill-in-the-blanks brother? That's how you always went about. And Peter is never referred to that way, right? You, 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 never, you never hear, oh, that's Andrew's brother. It's always Peter. And so there's a sense here that he's, he, he, he kind of plays a behind-the-scenes role. Andrew is rarely, if ever, center stage. 
He doesn't take the stage very often. He seems to be willing to assume roles behind the scenes. Um, he also, he stands in the shadows of his brother Peter. But he was far from idle or inactive. And I want to draw your attention to this. Disciples of Christ, pay attention to this. The role that he was willing to play is vital. In fact, it was Andrew who brought Peter into the spotlight. It was Andrew who brought Peter to Jesus. I love this statement in verse 42. He, Andrew, brought him, Peter, to Jesus. And we also see in verse 41 that the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother and tell him about Jesus. Andrew was evidently the sort of man who, after seeing Jesus for himself, immediately looks around for someone else to tell. And fascinatingly enough, is every account we have of Andrew in the book of John, do you know what he's doing? He's bringing people to Jesus. That's all he does. He experiences Jesus. He goes, find somebody and says, you need to come and see. This is what Andrew does over and over and over again. He himself never writes a book of the Bible. He's not noted as a great preacher, but he loved to bring people to Jesus. There's no indication that Andrew had some great gift of evangelism. Nothing in the Gospels lead us to the conclusion that he had a great infectious personality or any particular influence or power, but people like that are often the most effective at bringing people to Jesus. And and so hear me, Christians, the fascinating lesson to be learned here is, is this, is that to bring somebody to Jesus does not require a platform. It doesn't require to be the most eloquent person. It doesn't require to be the most famous or any of these things. It doesn't require to be the smartest person in the room. It just takes willingness. That is all that is required. I'd like to also say this about Andrew, because I don't think he gets enough cred out there, is this, is, is, is Andrew was actually so humble. What we see was he was, he was martyred. He, he was crucified in a sense, but he did not view himself worthy to be put on a cross like his savior, Jesus Christ. So he was crucified on a X. That's how he was crucified. And fascinatingly enough, if you know Scotland, the X on the flag is St. Andrew's cross, and it still flies today. So this seemingly normal man had a profound influence. And what was his influence? Telling people to come and see Jesus. So I won't spend as much time on the other guys. I just have a sweet spot in my heart for Andrew. I love the normalcy of who he was and his impact that he had. Then we move to Peter. Well, Peter at this point is not named Peter. Peter is brought to Jesus by his brother Andrew. Peter's given a name. Peter's given name was Simon, but Jesus renames him. Jesus renames him Cephas, meaning rock. and also Peter. During Jesus' life, who, who, who was Peter? When we look at Peter, he's a famous one, but let's just be honest. I think Peter was kind of dense. He was king and missing the point and getting it wrong. Some of my favorite stories in the Bible that make it so real and come alive come from Peter. What does Peter do when Jesus is in the garden and the soldiers come to arrest him? He cuts off the soldier's ear. 
He tries to chop off his head. Not only does he miss, but he does what Jesus told him not, didn't want him to do. And you can just imagine the scene, because in the scene, if you, if you remember it, what, what happens after he cuts off the guard's ear? Jesus goes, come on, Peter. And he bends down, picks up the ear, and puts it back on. What a wild story. Maybe my favorite story of Peter is after the resurrection, Jesus appears where, 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 the, where the disciples are out on the boat fishing, and, and, and they look to the beach and they see Jesus. What is Jesus doing? He is making them breakfast. You serve a God that loves, likes to make his boys breakfast. How great is that? And he's making breakfast on the beach and they see him and they're like, we have to go in. We have to get to Jesus. Peter can't control himself. He just jumps out of the boat and starts swimming. In seminary, I nerded out on that and studied it. The probability of him beating the boat is low. What a silly guy. Right? But that's kind of who he is. But the interesting thing is this, is that Jesus gives him this new name and calls him Rock and talks to him repeatedly about helping lead forward this new church that's going to be started. This guy who jumps out of boats and cuts off people's ears. This is who Jesus has chose. Here's what I'd like you to pull from this. When Jesus names people, when he gives new names, he names people based off of who he is making them to be, not who they are when they first meet him. He says, this is what I will do to you. Now, now, Now think of Peter down the road. Jesus has been crucified. He's appeared to them. He's ascended back into heaven. The, the disciples are still scared. They're, they're hiding in an upper room. The Holy Spirit falls on the disciples in that room. And who gets up and goes outside and preaches the first sermon of the new church? Peter. And he does so boldly. Solid as a rock. So when Jesus calls him and names him, he's calling him and naming him, not to who he necessarily is in that moment, but who he is going to be. Friends, when Christ calls you and gives you a purpose for his kingdom to establish it and move it forward, it may seem like that that is not who you are, but trust me, what Christ does through the work of the Holy Spirit in you It's far beyond what you could ever imagine. Then we go to Philip. Well, the text here doesn't tell us much about Philip, right? But we see him in other places in the book of John and other gospels. Once again, we get a man that's not that impressive. Um, Philip's kind of known for missing the point. That's that's what he's known for. And one of his most well-known scenes in which Philip appears um, is the least flattering of them all. He asked Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. That's in John 14, 8, to which Jesus famously replies, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me? Philip, whoever's seen the Father, I mean, whoever's seen me, has seen the Father. One can imagine the rest of the disciples, as Philip says this, just going and shaking their heads like, Come on, Philip. Why do you always have to ask dumb questions? This is what Philip does. But nonetheless, Jesus calls him. And what does he do? Well, he goes and finds his friend Nathaniel. Verse 45, Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, We have found him 
of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So that leads us to Nathaniel, the fourth guy. Nathaniel is interesting here because he's excited about the fulfillment part, but is skeptical about, about anything good that can come from Nazareth, right? Look at verse 46. Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, just come and see. This is an interesting thing that's going on here. So, I live in Boulder, Colorado. If you don't know this about Boulder, we think we're better than you. I don't know why. I'm not from there. I'm from Cincinnati originally. But people in Boulder are like, Boulder's better. That's just kind of the thing. It's the Boulder bubble. It's all these things. The People's Republic of Boulder. All of those goofy things, right? And and so when you're in Boulder, if you're not familiar with the area, if I think of the most intense place I could think of that would be the most opposite that's close by a Boulder, there's a town just east of I-25, directly east of Boulder, called Decono. Decono is known for having awesome paintball course and some highly unregulated go-kart place thing that I like to go to with my son where there's no governors and you can wreck your carts and they don't even care. It is not like Boulder and Decono, right? And, and so I, I give you this picture to let you know what Nazareth would have been like. Everybody would have been like, the Messiah can't come from Decono. That's what he's saying here, okay? To give you kind of an understanding. I have no problem with the Kono. My family's all from Kentucky. So if you, you got friends there, don't be like, Matt, Patrick from the well, hates the Kono. That's not true. I'm, at heart, I'm a hillbilly. So I um, love, love, love the culture in Dakono. okay? It, it's, it's a refresher to get out of Boulder and go to Dakono. But illustrating the point, he's like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I think this is an important thing for us to focus on because I think in the culture and the world in which we find ourselves living, we are told that good things must be flashy. They must come from well-known, popular things. You must be an expert on something, whatever that means anymore, to have an opinion on something or to know anything good. Today's the Super Bowl. What a mess. We're told, like, these are the important things. These are the important people. The, like, the halftime shows and the commercials. Like, like being famous means this and this and this. I, I think we can lose it. We learn a valuable lesson. But the kingdom of God swims in all waters here. And it comes from a place like Nazareth. But Jesus convinces him, though, because he, he's skeptical, by saying... I saw you under the fig tree, Nathaniel's confession in verse 49, right? Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Notice another interesting thing that Jesus does here. What, what, what does he say about Nathaniel as he walks up to Jesus? Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and he said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. In a similar way, when Jesus renames Simon to Peter, he, he sees Nathanael and tells him he is the Israelite in whom there is no deceit. He's telling him what will become true of him. He's telling him about what he's going to do in him. Again, this is what Jesus does. Those that come to him, he tells them whom he is making them to be. Jesus brings up 
uh, Jesus brings up things about Peter and Nathaniel, not who they are in the moment, but what he is doing in them. But notice something happens before all these men are told what they will become or what the mission is or what they're there to do or what any of this is going to look like. What happens? A confession is made. It starts with John the Baptist, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Andrew, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed King. Nathaniel, King of Israel and Son of God. They make confessions of faith. They are saying who Jesus is, and Jesus is saying who they will become. This is how it works. Seeing who Jesus is is the first step to be transformed into something new. So my question for you this morning is this. Do you know who Jesus is? Can you declare that he is the Lamb of God, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed King, the Son of God? Can you make that confession Can you say it with your mouth? Not some goofy version of it where it's just, you know, preach Christ at all times and if necessary, use words. That's stupid. Don't do that. Use words. God gave you a mouth. Confess out loud that he is Lord. Can you do that? If you want to strip the scale, if you you want the scales to be stripped off, to fall off, if you want the weight of your sin to come off and you want to be transformed into who you were made to be, you must first be able to make a confession of faith in who Christ is. Interestingly enough here, everyone has been kind of declaring and making a great confession of who Christ is, who Jesus is, But do you notice that he also gives himself his name and his title? In verse 51, and he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. In this text, Jesus reveals something very important. Yes, he is all those things the men in our story um, called him, but he adds to it here. What does he add? He says, I'm the son of man. Why does he intro himself this way? The very beginning of his ministry. The son of God is who he is. The son of man describes the office that the son of God holds. It speaks to the work that he came to perform. Son of man is his work. Son of God is who he is. Where do you get that, Matt? Just making that up? I'm not. It's in the Bible. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven there came, one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Friends, the Son of Man is an announcement that he has dominion over the earth, that the kingdom of God is here. 
What did Jesus come to do? Yes, to save the people from their sins, absolutely. But he also came to claim that this world is his. It was a statement of dominion and power and authority. That God has come. I think oftentimes in our Christian theology, and, and I know we have a very varying range of backgrounds and how we are raised, but in evangelicalism, we can get so focused that our picture of Christ is a salvific one, which it absolutely is, but we can actually forget what Christ also came to do, which was to claim the whole world as his own. To claim this city, Denver, is Christ. To claim Boulder for Christ. Your workplace, your schools, your homes. Whatever you do is his. He has dominion. This is a statement of authority. And these men would have known what he was saying. Do we know what he's saying? Do we understand that Jesus' words here We're meant to say that yes, he came to conquer sin and death, but he also has dominion over everything. In the world that we find ourselves currently living in, it may seem much to navigate. How do we handle all of the things that we've all like had to navigate through the last couple of years? I would, I would submit to you one thing. You're in the right church if you're in Denver because it wasn't as complicated for you. Because you stuck to scripture, good on you. That's what Christians should do. But I think what we need to be doing is I think about this world as we live in and we try to navigate it, knowing the authority and dominion that that Christ has in this world and that he has given that to his people to express. But we need to learn to read our news in light of our Bibles instead of the other way around. You see, if you understand the dominion of Christ, you understand that He wins. Like, you have the book. We know what happens. Now, we may not understand how we get there, but we know that he is authoritative over all. It changes how we live. It changes how we think. On top of that, Jesus gives us this interesting statement in this passage. I don't know if you noticed it, this statement in here right before the Son of Man come about angels descending and ascending. That's fascinating. Where does that come from? Well, that comes from the book of Genesis where we get the story of Jacob. Chapter 28, J- Jacob is on the run because he stole his brother's blessing and his brother Esau has decided that he's going to kill him. So if somebody's going to kill you, you either fight them and kill them or you run. He chose to run. He's on the run, and he's taking off. And so I just want to read this to you so so you can see what's going on here. Genesis 28, verse 11. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set, taking one of the stones of the place, and he put it under his head and lay down in in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, 
the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. This is the story that's known as Jacob's Ladder. The picture of the connection between heaven and earth and angels ascending and descending. But ultimately the vision is about God reconnecting heaven to earth, bringing heaven to earth. It is a picture of God blessing his people and having dominion and covering the face of the earth. So, so what, what does Jesus use this picture to, what, why does he use this picture to explain what's going on? What, what, what's he doing here? Well, Jesus is saying something very profound to these men. What he's saying to them and what he's saying to us is he's saying, I am Jacob's ladder. I am the connection between heaven and earth. I am the one that brings the kingdom of God from heaven to earth. It's not speaking of a particular moment necessarily. He's speaking in general as to what he is there to do. Interestingly enough, if you go back to Genesis in chapter 28, if you go back just a little bit further back, what what do you have? You have the story of the Tower of Babel, of men trying to make their own connection to heaven, trying to create their own way to get to heaven, to try to do that. What did God do? He said, no, that will never work. He broke it down and scattered the people. But here we see how the connection with man and God is to be made. It is through Christ. Not through our own efforts, not through our own works, but by his alone. So let's just stop as we begin to wrap this up and think about all that's going on here. Because there's a lot in this passage. Jesus has come. He's been baptized, signaling the beginning of his earthly ministry. John the Baptist announces that the Lamb of God is here and he is here to take away the sins of the world. The men in this story proclaim who they believe him to be. Jesus then tells them who they are. Jesus takes these seemingly simple men, invites them to be with him, and doing so points them to who they will become. And finally, Jesus declares that he is the son of man, that he is the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy, and that he has dominion over all, and that he is Jacob's ladder bringing heaven to earth. You got all that? To put it simply, King Jesus has come. He is stripping the scales of sin off of his people and he is guiding them to the life that they were called to live and to glorify him in claiming dominion on this earth for his glory. What if we lived in light of that? That the king is on his throne. That the connection with God is in front of us. That if we confess who he is, he gives us a new name and points us to what is most true. To live in light of this is to take this reality into everything in life, including the mundane. To know that when we go to work, go to school, make a dinner, start a business, change a diaper, that in all of that, even the most dane, that Christ is king of that. All that we do, everything, is in service of the king, making his kingdom a deeper reality in this world. He has shed the scales 
of death from our souls. He is guiding us, he is naming us, and he is redeeming all things to himself. The only right response to that truth is to worship the king. Let's pray.